It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and for today's conversation, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Cahill McCall, Professor of European Politics and Borders here at Queen's University Belfast, and author of Border Ireland, From Partition to Brexit, published this year. Cahill, the book's argument is framed through the lenses of bordering, debordering, rebordering, and borderlessness. Can you say something for people about what you mean by those themes? <coughs> Yeah, I thought it would be a good way of, of organising the book, Richard, um, because, uh, as you know, bordering really uh, kicks in probably after 1925. Uh, Irish state uh, enters into a process of state building, if you like. Similarly, the, um, the Unionist administration in the north wished to consolidate Northern Ireland uh, as part of the UK uh, and indeed as part of their their own place, if you like, on the island of Ireland. Um, so you see a progressive, uh, you see a progressive process really of bordering right up to the 1990s, and of course the apotheosis of that was um, in the 1970s and 80s when uh, the troubles really, uh, really take root. Um, so that, for instance, you know, I grew up in Dungannon, which is. Quite close to the border, um, it's about twelve miles from Ochnacloy, and during those those times in the seventies and eighties, when I was a boy, um, we would cross the border quite regularly to meet um, relatives who resided in Dublin. Um, the reason why we crossed the border was because my my uncle Joe, he was a detective in the Garda in the Garda Shikona, and he was threatened if he came across the border. He was threatened by the IRA that he'd be shot. So we would make the regular pilgrimage across the border every month, usually. Myself, my father, my grandmother and great-aunt Rose. And we would uh, dine in the Hillgrove Hotel in Monaghan or the Four Seasons, depending on the, on the mood that took us. So we had a very strong experience of the border as being bordered because my father would always get very um, tense coming up to the border checkpoint at Ochnacloy. Um, manned incidentally in those days by uh, Colonel Bob Stewart, who's now Conservative MP and a member of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee, who I meet regularly <laughs> when I appear before that committee. So bordering really, for me, it was a, a kind of a personal experience. Um, many others had personal experiences as well. But it was something that really affected people's lives, particularly those that had any sort of um, cross-border impetus, if you like. Um, Debordering really kicks in then in the, in the 1990s with the, the European single market, customs posts abolished, and of course the, the nascent peace process kicking in. Um, and uh, you know you see a real flourishing then in terms of cross-border contact, communication and cooperation, not least because the European Union funded the reopening of those cross-border roads they funded that social capital needed for people to interact across the border. You wrote the book around the time of the 100th anniversary of partition in Ireland, and you wrote it in Belfast, and you wrote it in the aftermath of Brexit. Can you say something for people about how the time and place of the research for the book affected the kind of book it became? Um, well, the place 
thing is interesting because, of course, it took place, uh, the, the writing of it took place during the pandemic when I and many others were in a bubble. Um, and it was kind of interesting for me because um, I live in Ormo, so uh, uh, the place there is a very it's cosmopolitan, really. Um, uh, and it's not like other, possibly other parts of Belfast, which are more, more of an ethnoscape space. Um, so that didn't really, you know, people that you'd meet on the Armour Road would be interested in, um, you know, uh, what do you think of Tyrone's chances in the Gaelic football final this year? Oh, can I get to Portugal, do you think, in the summertime? Those sort of conversations would be happening. There'd be a wee bit of Brexit, I suppose. But um, there'd be a, a good range of subjects discussed. But the benefit of working in the pandemic was that um, I took to, well, basically I had to, get the book, had to get the book finished. It was two years late. We were coming up to the end of Bre Brexit, uh, the Brexit negotiation. I was running out of excuses with the publisher. Uh, so uh, I just decided to go for it and um, worked from nine o'clock at night to two o'clock in the morning every day. For three months and that's what happened <laughs> so the place the place really uh didn't affect the the writing of the book but the timing did in terms of the pandemic it gave me that sort of space to do it and, and of course the pressure from from the publisher which was relentless and do you enjoy writing i love it i really i really enjoyed that uh 9 9 p.m to 2 a.m i mean when I read it there again recently, and it has the feeling of a nighttime written book, <laughs> because there, there are a few uh, a few flourishes in there that that are suggestive of a, a one one a.m. You know, a lot to be said for nighttime books. Recent political developments have seen the introduction of what some see as a new kind of border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, and there's been anxiety from unionists about that. But there's also been an in rich sense of excitement among some nationalists in Ireland about the idea that the legacy of Brexit might be to accelerate what some see as an almost inevitable Irish unification, Irish unity. Could you comment on that new kind of borderings or getting rid of the Irish border? Well, it's, I mean, Brexit, Brexit suggested, I mean, the, the key um, leave slogan was take back control and take back control in terms of states if you want to go back to that traditional notion of sovereignty, means taking control of borders. And, uh, you know, you're gonna, a border of some sort had to be erected somewhere. Um, and the Irish border is, uh, is very, is and always has been very leaky anyway. It's been the source of conflict. Um, you know, it has the most cross-border roads of, of any two states in Europe, um, hundreds of them, in fact. Um, so the, the idea of, of closing hundreds of secondary cross-border roads and having 15 key arterial routes open seemed to me be a really retrograde step and I think many others. So the question would be then where do you, where, where does a state and, uh, and, uh, and, and the European Union create this border between each other? And I've always argued that, you know, the, the, the easiest thing to do would be to, uh, to secure the borders of Britain, the, the seaports and the airports. Um, that was always the most straightforward, the least expensive thing to do. Now, I understand perfectly well that that creates real a real issue for the Ulster British, as I term them. Um, and that's, 
Yes, on, 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 with, with complications in terms of the implementation of the protocol attached to the withdrawal agreement, uh, there are serious complications um, with the free flow of goods and we're hearing about medicines and people are working uh, around that. I mean, the, the EU, has, the, the Commission has thrown up open as a rule book to try and adjust the rule book and I've never heard of doing that before. Uh, in order to accommodate um, the free flow of medicines to Northern Ireland. But yeah, there is that aspect to it. But of course, for the Ulster British, the Ulster British Unionists is an identity issue. It is an identity issue and it's this idea of being, uh, of being uh, severed from the rest of the United Kingdom. There always was, incidentally, checks and animals uh, coming across the North Channel and Irish Sea. Uh, but you know the, the whole um, the whole Brexit uh, the outcome of Brexit has been to to um, intensify uh, that that bordering experience um, and I think I, I mean I do I do have sympathy with the unionist position it's not a straightforward uh, 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 constitutional sovereignty issue. But it does affect other aspects of sovereignty, which is economic sovereignty, cultural sovereignty, um, and uh, you know it's 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 a sad thing that that has happened because what had what had been here before uh, for twenty years was uh, an accommodation through the Good Friday Agreement through uh, through British Irish intergovernmental cooperation through the European Union umbrella that allowed us to be calm in terms of our existence here. It, it totally demoted the unionist nationalist conflict. Um, the border was calm. So for me at that point, it was the best possible outcome because people were living their lives. There was an all-island economy developing. There was, a, there, there was what I call an Irish cultural borderscape developing that allowed that contact, that communication and cooperation across the border and between the two indigenous communities here and other and others, the new Irish or the new Northern Irish, uh, becoming involved as well. So it, it was a, a there was a great flowering in that period, and, and Brexit basically uh, um, led to a retreat into conflict tre trenches for unionism and nationalism here. The outcome, who knows? I mean, who can say? Uh, Brexit goes on, the negotiation goes on with regard to, to here, um, what, what, what's happening here through Lord Frost and, and uh, the Vice President of the European Commission. Um, whether the protocol will continue to exist or not uh, will come down to whether, I guess, uh, Boris Johnson feels tempted to trigger Article 16, which stops in whole or, or in part the implementation of the protocol, and what to do then. That's the question. And given what you described, Carl, about the, the problems which Brexit in some ways predictably brought for unionists, that there was the issue of bordering Britain and therefore causing difficulties for Northern Ireland unionists, but also the disaffection among nationalists likely to raise hostility towards the situation that there was with Northern Ireland seemingly stable in parts of the UK. Did it surprise you that unionists were more likely to vote for Brexit than Brexit than those kind of considerations might encourage them to do. Because unionists are far more likely to be pro-Brexit than nationalists were in the North. Yeah. Um, well, at the time when the, you know, uh, certainly when the DUP um, were campaigning uh, for for um, uh, vote leave, it seemed almost half-hearted 
to be honest. Uh, it seemed as though they didn't expect this to happen, but they thought they would, you know, throw their cards in behind uh, behind uh, the UK state uh, as a lever type thing. So um, uh, I, I don't think they expected it at that point. Uh, in the early days of of the um, of, of the of the withdrawal agreement negotiations coming through for it through fruition and, and and protocol coming into effect, they were they were actually start. Some of them were talking about the best of both, both worlds. Um, um, Northern Ireland having access to two the two different markets, um, European Union and British, uh, but that. You know, I think once the opinion polls started coming in and the DUP's uh, slide to 13% in the opinion polls, 13% of the vote then they quickly changed tack and, and some of the more outspoken um, <coughs> Brexiteers in the party came to the fore again. And where should research on the Irish border move next in terms of research questions, in terms of methodological orientation, in terms of focal points of importance? Well, it can move in multiple directions. Uh, it's, a, it's a never ending tale. It's, um, it's a very fascinating subject. Um, for me, it always has been a very fascinating subject, but I think more people are interested these days. So for an historian, for example, it would be very uh, potentially fruitful to follow um, Peter Leary and his great book on approved routes and look at, at the period, say, between 1930 and 19, 1970. Um, to, to do a micro history of of communities, border communities, and the cross border contact, perhaps that they would have encountered, um, and uh, look at the way in which the border through the seventies and eighties uh, impacted upon that. Um, that would be one route. Another route would be to look at people. Um, um, obviously, there are shortages now in terms of of labour coming from the rest of the European Union in Northern Ireland. <coughs> uh, the mobility of, of, of cross-border workers is, is a fascinating area to look at, I think, you know, with 30,000 30, people crossing the border per day. Um, and, and to see and to examine perhaps the shortfall now in terms of, of, of European Union labour coming to, coming, that used to come into Northern Ireland. Um, I, you know, the, I think there's, there's a, you know, brilliant cross, there are brilliant border writers um, following Eugene McCabe, who's recently deceased, but there, you know, there, there are young uh, writers coming from the border area who write about the border experience. Um, and it would be great for people in humanities, arts and humanities, to, to look at that aspect. Loads of great documentaries as well, uh, very artistic pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something for, for us all to perhaps uh, collaborate in, um, both arts, humanities, social science. Carl McCall's book, Border Island, From Partition to Brexit, is published by Routledge. I strongly recommend it to everyone. It's a terrific book. And for his insights today, many, many thanks to Professor Carl McCall. Thank you. Thanks, Richard.